Well, good evening. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 18, if you want to go ahead and turn there. I was recently in a situation a few weeks ago where something happened that hurt my pride. Uh, It wasn't a big deal. I don't even know that I could tell you exactly what it was. Uh, What specifically happened isn't nearly as important as what the Lord set off in my heart afterwards. As I was reflecting on this situation that the day it happened just really irked me, I was thinking about it and I was reflecting on it and I started praying and I kept asking God the same question over and over, which was, Lord, why can't I seem to let this thing go? Why can't I just, it's, it's bothering me so much. Why can't I let it go? What is, there has to be something in me. There has to be something in me that is keeping me from letting this thing go. And what happened was, after that, it kicked off a series of thoughts that the Lord used to convict me in a way that gave me an entirely new perspective on the condition of my heart and the pride that lives inside it. As I was praying and asking God what it was that made my ego hurt so much, the first thought in a series of thoughts that came to mind was, well, that situation hurt my pride because it, it made me feel like I didn't matter. And I just want to feel like I matter. And, and as I was thinking, I was like, Lord, that's not that bad, right? Like, I just want to feel like I matter. And that's when I felt like the Lord was like, well, yeah, because that's not it. Um, and the next thought that came to my mind was, well, maybe it's not just that I want to feel like I matter. Maybe it's that I also want others to think that I matter, And as I was thinking about this, it it still didn't quite sit right. It was getting worse in my mind because that feels worse than the first one. And and I I felt like the Lord was was saying, no, that's, that's still not it. And the thought that came to my mind was that I think that situation didn't just hurt my pride because I want to think that I matter and that I want other people to think that I matter. I think that situation hurt my pride because I want to matter more than other people. And that was when I feel like I started getting somewhere. I was, I was, my pride hurt, my ego hurt because I'm prideful. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes this. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or smart or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or smarter or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or smart or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And I I think that's all of pride, right? It's the pleasure of having more than other people. It's not that our pride gets hurt because we don't feel significant. We feel hurt because we don't feel more significant than the people around us. And this idea of significance or even, even greatness, I think, is pretty subjective, both culturally and personally. There is this idea of being the most significant or the greatest among friends. There's being the greatest among society. There's being the greatest in the world. And then there's what us young people would say is the goat, being the greatest of all time. And this quest for significance is a never-ending process for most people, right? A never-ending grind to achieve whatever measure of success uh, we feel is necessary to give us meaning and motivate us so that at least within our sphere of influence or within our little world gives us some measure of significance. 
It's what drives us to work long hours. It causes us to sacrifice temporarily for something greater down the road so that at the end of it all, we can look back and we can think that I have measured up. What I did mattered. Who we are has significance. Or greatness is subjective in the sense that it always feels out of reach for some of us. The idea of being somebody isn't foreign and that we, it's not that we don't understand what it means, it's just that it's never really felt like that was in the cards for me. You've always been mid-tier, your success would be considered mediocre at best to the rest of the world, and that's how you think that people see your life, and that's how you see your life. And because this greatness or this perceived measure of success feels out of reach to you, there's not a whole lot of striving or grinding going on in your life. A medium life requires medium effort, And if greatness isn't an option, then why push harder than what it takes to be comfortable? You feel you won't earn greatness, you won't be significant, but but you can be comfortable, so you keep expectations low, and you just hope to avoid the majority of life's disappointments. You see, greatness is subjective in that it means different things for different people, but one thing that pretty much all of the world generally agrees on is that you have to earn your significance. Very rarely is somebody going to hand it to you. If you want to be great, if you want to be significant, if you want to be somebody, you have to get out and work and make it happen. You have to achieve your status. And this perception is as old as civilization, right? It's not just in our Western hyper-individualistic world that we've created this need or this drive for success and significance. We see accounts of this in the ancient world for recipes of success, for recipes for significance. You see soldiers motivated for battle by being told that their death will leave a glorious legacy, right? And, and, it, and it was often then, and it is now, we see that societies create a hierarchy of status. And those on the top feel superior to those on the bottom, and those on the bottom feel inferior to those who are on the top. And therefore, our societies, since the beginning, have been in a constant tension of trying to understand how do I measure up within the hierarchy? Where and how do I get my status? Where do I and how do I get my significance? And that's what brings us to our text this evening. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 18, we're gonna read verses one through five. It says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we can do nothing without you. God, I can do nothing without you. Up here, these words of mine are empty and void unless your Holy Spirit moves them to reach the hearts of people. God, I pray that you will help us see in your word that there is a type of humility that you are looking for, that you ask of us. Lord, and we see how it all connects to your gospel. I pray we'll see that tonight in your name. Amen. Now, in its present context, this question seems weird for the disciples, at least it does to me, because in the passage right before, um, Jesus and Peter are having this interaction with temple officials where they ask Peter, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And Jesus Jesus basically says, Peter, let's not offend them. Uh, He goes on to this thing about the child of the kingdom, and then he tells Peter, why don't you go fishing? 
And inside of the fish's mouth that you catch will be a coin, and that'll be enough for our temple tax. And so it's this, it's this weird, weird story right before this dialogue about the kingdom. And so it's important that we back up a little bit and zoom out to see why is this context important for us, and, and really where along the storyline do we see Jesus bringing this up? You see, in this point, we see two chapters earlier that, that, we, that Peter is told that he will be the one on whom the church is, the church is built, and then a couple, couple cha- or the next chapter after that, we see Jesus brings Peter, James, and John onto the mountain and gets transfigured before them. And at this point in chapter 18, we've already seen the word kingdom used 30 times, over 30 times. And in real life, I'm guessing they heard it a whole lot more from Jesus to this point. And we'll see it a total of 53 times in the book of Matthew. And, and so the disciples are hearing Jesus use this kingdom language And they're seeing these certain people get certain responsibilities. They're being given titles. They're being told that that the church is going to be built on them. They're being invited into these small meetings. And so they, they start talking to each other. And in Mark and Luke, we find out that a fight breaks out. And the reality is, and as I read this passage... I was kind of like, wow, y'all are doofuses because like Jesus is literally talking to you and you're sitting there talking about who's the greatest. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I literally ask this question about myself every single day. And, and so it's, it's easy as we're looking at this to be like, wow, they are dumb. Um, but it, it becomes a lot more sad when we look at ourselves and I'm like, whoa, I am dumb. Um, and so what happens is this fight breaks out among them about who is the greatest which would happen with any group of people, right, who is now seeing these things take place, these people are getting this prominence, and you want to know, where do I fit into that? And why do they ask this? It's because they, and just like us, we only have one context for kingdoms. They know that kingdoms have structure. They know that kingdoms have a hierarchy. They know that they're in a kingdom, there's a top, there's a middle, and there's a bottom. And they're wanting Jesus to tell them, in this kingdom that you're bringing, who is going to have the greatest position of honor? Who will have the highest recognition? Who's going to be in the top tier of this kingdom? Who's going to be the 1% of this kingdom of heaven that you're bringing? And when Jesus responds, we realize very quickly that the disciples and us often have absolutely no idea how the kingdom works. The way Jesus responds is how one pastor says it's the most counterintuitive, upside down, inside out understanding of true human greatness the world had ever seen to this point. He says that whoever humbles himself and takes the lower position, whoever becomes the least of these like this child will be the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. He even takes it a step further and he says, unless you turn and become like this child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is our main point of the evening, and we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking this this key truth that humility is both the requirement for entering the kingdom of heaven and what determines our position within it. Humility is both the requirement for entering the kingdom of heaven and what determines our position within it. So Jesus tells them, humble yourselves, take the lowest position, become the least of you. That's the person that will be the greatest. And then it's not only what's required to be the greatest, it's going to be what's required to enter the kingdom at all. And this is so upside down than the way that the world understands greatness. The world's understanding of greatness is that I have to struggle, 
I have to win, I have to achieve, I have to succeed in order to earn my own greatness. And the problem is that this creates incredible insecurity in us. And what I mean by that is that everything you do in this, in this view of greatness and how I achieve my own status and my, my own greatness and significance, it creates a, an incredible insecurity in us because what I do now gets filtered every single day through the lens of a grade that I'll be getting at the end of every day. You either did things today that gave you a passing grade towards this goal of significance or you got a failing grade. And every day you are graded by your interactions, your contributions, your capabilities. And what, and what this does is it makes us both incredibly selfish and incredibly fragile. Here's what I mean by that. This, this mindset makes us selfish because it forces us to look at relationships and interactions as transactional. And this is what I mean. Every relationship, when it gets filtered, we walk into a room and we look at the room and we filter it about whether or not the people in this room are gonna help me climb the ladder or pull me down the ladder. You have to filter people out who can't help you rise up. You don't have the patience or the time for the people who don't help you climb. And, and I'm not saying that, that relationships outside of Christianity are all inauthentic, but what I am saying is that they are all authentically selfish at their core. These relationships are transactional because you see your relationship with people as having the potential to get you somewhere. Now, whether they make you feel good because your life is better than theirs, or they can help boost your social credit, credit they can help you network for a job, they have the potential to help you reach the next step on the ladder, however you see it, and you have to find people who can help you get to this next step. And on the surface, this doesn't sound that bad because it actually sounds really normal. And that's exactly the point. Everyone does this. Because without the type of humility we're going to be exploring tonight, all re relationships have some form of transactions. And you can see how the selfishness becomes obvious when, when you look to your past and you'll see people that you no longer associate with because they no longer help you. You're either adding, they are either adding to your social credit, your corporate credit, your relational credit, your romantic credit, or they're deducting from it. And you can't see people as people, you just see people as selfish potential. Even if this is subconscious, so I'm not saying that this is a conscious thing that we do in every room, but it's something that we subconsciously have to do if we think through greatness in this way. But when we look at it closely, it should become obvious to us. And so the same idea of greatness that I have to earn, that I have to win, that I have to succeed, it also makes us incredibly fragile. If every interaction we have with other people gets filtered through expecting some type of subconscious grade at the end of every day, then when I'm passing, I'm going cloud nine, right? I feel awesome. I feel like I did what I needed to do to get the thing that needed to get done today, and I feel awesome. But when the greatest failing at the end of the day, we're crushed. This mindset leaves us fragile because it leaves us unbelievably vulnerable to criticism. Whether created by ourselves, when we critique our own selves, or whether it's, whether it's created by other people, this type of mindset takes criticism incredibly poorly. So when you get criticized, it either sends you into a spiral and you're crushed, or you can't help but be defensive because now your identity is being graded. When your best effort falls short, it's you that's insufficient. 
And so when you have a bad conversation or an awkward encounter, it sticks with you all day long and you replay it in your head like a movie over and over and over and you can't escape because it's graded your identity now. And so you become crushed by criticism and you have no other choice but to see your identity as receiving a failing grade. Or criticism only serves to reinforce our pride because the only defense we have against being crushed by criticism or a conversation that went poorly is to blame other people and assume the problem is them. To deflect any blame, to assume that it's everyone else that's the problem. Because if I'm the problem, that means that I'm insufficient. And that means I have no identity. And so the world's view of greatness is that I have to work and I have to grind and I have to achieve and I have to succeed. And this creates an insecurity in us because everything now gets filtered through the lens of a grade you'll receive at the end of every day. Your relationships become transactional, your ego blows through the roof, but you are left incredibly fragile and vulnerable to the things that go wrong. And so what Jesus says here is what flips everything upside down. He says that the mark of true greatness and the way the kingdom works, the true and ultimate hierarchy, the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who becomes the lowest. It's required to be the greatest in the kingdom, and unless we have this type of humility, we can't even enter the kingdom. And so when the disciples ask Jesus, who is the greatest, and he responds by bringing a child into their midst, and he says, unless you turn and become like this child, you can't enter the kingdom. So we have to ask, what does that mean, right? What a weird thing to have done, right? We've already flipped upside down the paradigm of greatness, and now we have a child standing in the middle of our group. So we have to ask, what does this mean? What's the humility or the lowliness that we're supposed to have in order to enter the kingdom to achieve our position within it? I'm going to first tell you what it's not. True gospel-centered humility does not have anything to do with high self-esteem or low self-esteem. And how do we know this? It's because Jesus tells us that the humility required is to be like this child, and anyone who has a, a child knows that they fluctuate on this, this pendulum all the time of high self-esteem and low self-esteem. And so the answer to what the gospel-centered humility is doesn't flow from my own view of myself, which is self-esteem. This is so much, way too selfish of a definition for humility, because there is incredible pride on both ends of self-esteem, and both extremes are fragile at best. One author writes that our ego often hurts. He says it's because our ego has something incredibly wrong with it, something unbelievably wrong. It's always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day, and it makes us think about how we look and how we're treated. And, and so people say that their feelings are hurt, but really it's not their feelings that are hurt, it's their egos that are hurt. And so the answer to why don't I have humility or, or even what humility is can't be answered by saying, well, you, your self-esteem is just too high. You need to flatten that out, right? You need, to, you need to put some low self-esteem in there. You need to pick on yourself more. You need to look at yourself as less. This can't be the answer because it makes humility still about you. Because you have to assess, assess constantly whether or not your self-esteem is at the level that it should be. Whether or not I want to make sure my ego hurts enough so that I think I'm humble. And it's still just all about us. And so what is true gospel-centered humility? C.S. Lewis in his, his book, Mere Christianity, makes an incredible observation in his chapter about pride. He says that if you were to meet a truly humble person, 
He says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. He said, they wouldn't always be telling us about how awful they are or how much of a nobody they are because the reality is if someone's constantly talking about that, they're pretty self-obsessed, right? And so what Lewis is saying is that the thing we would remember for meeting a truly humble person is that they seem to be totally interested in us. As Lewis puts it, the essence of gospel-centered humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. This is why Jesus moves so quickly from, from the greatest in the kingdom phrase to what he says in verse five about receiving the lowly because gospel-centered humility is not thinking less of myself but is thinking about myself less. So this is what Jesus tells us we're supposed to do and supposed to be. It's this kind of humility that allows us to enter the kingdom. And so the question then becomes, if this is what humility is, how do I get it? How do I get this type of humility? How, I, how do I become free from the world's standard of greatness, the world's standard of success, and then do what Jesus says here, which seems impossible, which is to become the lowest? How do I become humble enough and become like a child, think about myself less so that I can enter into the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is so critical to how we live the Christian life. The answer is that you have to realize when you look at Jesus that he did something you and I could never naturally do on our own. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? It's the one who becomes the lowest. So who is the lowest in the, who is, who is the one who became the lowest? It was Jesus. He, was, he went from the highest of the heights to the lowest of the lows. He is the greatest in the kingdom. He did something we could, do, we could never naturally do on our own. He left his position in the height of heights at the right hand of the Father and came down to be the lowest for us. We couldn't add anything to him. He didn't gain anything by becoming the lowest. Instead, he gave everything to the point of death on a cross so that we could gain everything. This is the ultimate humility poured out for us. That is what the foundation of gospel-centered humility is, is that when I realize that the true lowest of the kingdom and who's the greatest of the kingdom, it's never me because Christ came down and did what I couldn't do. And what this does when we realize what Jesus did for us is that it frees us from both pride and from insecurity. It frees us from pride because Jesus did something I couldn't do for myself. I have no ability to boast in the work of Christ because it's something that I didn't do and couldn't do on my own. And so I, I, I'm incapable of being prideful for a work I didn't do. But it also frees us from insecurity in that Jesus knew me before he died. And I was his enemy. Romans tells us while we were still enemies, he died for us. So I can't be insecure knowing that, hey, God loves me like that. It should free us from insecurity because what happens is that when he knew me fully, while I was still an enemy, he saw me completely. And while we see every, we think everybody else, if they really, the reality is everyone knew what was going on in, in your head. Like you'd have no friends at all. Um, I would definitely not. And like I would, we're not gonna get into all that. There's, I feel like if we really think about what goes in on our own heads, right? Like we would have no friends, but God knows all of it, knows us completely before we were even born and still died for us. That should remove every insecurity of our life because the reality is that there is only one person whose eyes that matter and he already approved of us. 
And so it frees us from insecurity. So what are the implications of this? What does this change for us? And how does this ultimately set us free from thinking about ourselves? The first thing it does is that it frees us from this grading system. Gospel-centered humility is not me needing to constantly think about myself and how I'm doing. I don't have to constantly connect things to myself. Gospel-centered humility puts an end to deflating thoughts like, oh man, how did that interaction go? Oh, I feel like I messed that up. I said that word dumb and I, everyone's gonna think I'm an idiot and, and I just, I don't know how to focus anymore and I keep playing this loop over and over in my head and it removes that grade from us and it also removes the inflating thoughts from us where we look at other people and then judge our own success by, by whether or not we think we're doing better. Gospel-centered humility leads us to be like one author, what one author calls an unself-conscious person. I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. I become free from receiving a grade on my significance at the end of the day because I'm free to just not think about myself. Paul talks about in, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, he's talking to, uh, he's talking to the church and, he's, and they have the dispute over Apollos and over, and over Paul. And he basically tells them, he says, I have an incredibly low opinion of your opinion of me. And then he says, but I also have an incredibly low opinion of my opinion of myself. This idea of gospel-centered humility frees us from thinking about ourselves. So it removes us from this grading system. And secondly, this type of humility frees us from criticism. We said earlier that when we, speak, when we seek our significance the way the world tells us to, by striving and achieving and winning and working, it leaves us vulnerable to criticism. And so this is such a good test for all of us because we all receive criticism all the time, right? In so many areas we receive criticism. But since we've been freed from this grading system, we don't have to look at every interaction as a grade on our identity, even criticism. We're free to receive criticism and not let it crush us because we can acknowledge our sin and shortcomings and not connect them to our identity. Dallas Willard says that we should be able to receive and agree with true criticism and still sleep just as soundly at night. So the test for an unself-conscious person is that they, they're never hurt that badly by criticism. And the world can't do this. And this is what's so important for us to see because every interaction is a grade on your identity. And so you have to be crushed by criticism because you're looking for other things to validate you and a criticism is the opposite of validation. And so you're either crushed by it or you have to become prideful and defensive because you can't believe it. But Christians, can, we can look at criticism and say, oh, yeah, dude, you're right. Like, that is absolutely an area that I need to work on. And it doesn't connect to our identity at all. The gospel humble person is the complete opposite in that we can look at criticism and we can agree where things are true. Criticism doesn't devastate the Christian. It doesn't crush them. They can listen to it and see opportunities for change. It should be that the more we understand the gospel, the more we want to change and so hearing criticism that we can agree with, we use as an opportunity for change as a reflection of the gospel work in us. So this type, of this type of humility frees us from criticism, but it also frees us from expectations. And here's where this can get a little bit tricky because gospel-centered humility does not negate good and godly ambition. 
right? God has put eternity in the hearts of all of us, and that often gets fanned into a flame that, that desires and drives and strives for great things. And so ambition and, not dr- and drive are not bad, but they have to be viewed, viewed with perspective. When we have true gospel humility, we lay no claims to greatness. We should have no expectations of fame and notoriety, and here's why. Just like criticism is not connected to our identity, we can agree with people who, who have true criticisms of us and it not crush us. In the same way I can be free to admit my own failures and it not connect to my identity, I can also be free to pursue good things and accomplish big things and it also not be part of my identity. So ambition and drive are not bad, we just have to have a gospel humble perspective that we lay no claims to greatness. But humility can quite naturally accompany positions of great influence and leadership. Archbishop William Temple displayed this when he wrote, I have never sought and never refused a position of greater responsibility. A commentator writes that others may need to keep face because they have no ultimate security to fall back on, but Christians should never need to do this. They know that we're accepted in Christ we can take the mask off, we lay no pretense to greatness and just be utterly at the disposal of Jesus. Pastor S.D. Gordon, who is not a very highly educated man himself, he wrote, get every qualification you can and use it for the kingdom. The problem is that without gospel-centered humility, people spend so much of their lives seeking and striving, highly motivated, highly ambitious, hoping that at the end of the day, the things that they have accomplished and accumulated will give them significance. The Christian is free from this. God has already given us everything. Like the song says, heaven has no more to give. Romans 8.32 says that he who didn't spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? This type of humility sets us free from expectations. The last way that this type of humility sets us free is that it allows us to enjoy relationships that are not transactional. Remember, we said earlier that through the world's view of greatness, that we have no choice but to walk into a room and screen each person and filter whether or not they're going to help us come up or not. They're either adding to your social credit, your corporate credit, your romantic credit, or they're deducting from it. But gospel-centered humility doesn't screen people like that. Instead, it welcomes them, especially the lowest of them. It allows us to do what Jesus did and welcome the lowly and to love the least of these. We become free to love with no strings attached simply because we can. We become free to love with no strings attached. Uh, In Romans 12, I'm gonna read verses nine through 16. You don't have to go there yourselves, but I want you to see this as I read this passage. It says, uh, this, this passage is often like, has the heading at the top of love and action. It says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It's really easy to love people when they benefit you, when they add to your status, and they make you feel good about yourself, but it is impossible to love people the way that Paul describes in this passage without humility. 
You have to catch it in this passage. He says, honor one another above yourselves. Other passages say, outdo each other with brotherly affection. He says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with the low position. You aren't capable of doing this without the gospel. Humility doesn't screen people in the room to see who's going to make you look good. Humility welcomes the lowly in Jesus' name because it's only by his name and in his power that we can have a freedom like that. To not connect every person and conversation to the significance we hope to see in ourselves, people should come away from conversations with us remembering how much we seem to be totally interested in them. True gospel-centered humility is thinking of ourselves less. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the one who became the lowest. Jesus Christ became the lowest. He was the highest and became the lowest. He is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. And when we realize what Jesus did by leaving his position to come and be the lowest for us, claiming no status, he was ultimate humility poured out for us. When we finally realize this, we're free. So true gospel-centered humility then becomes both the requirement for entering the kingdom and what determines our position within it. Let's pray. Father, Lord, within us, on our own, there is no greatness in any of us. But God, you became the lowest for us. You set us free with that. I can love people simply because you ask me to, simply because I can. There's no strings attached, Lord. You became the lowest for us. You were poured out for us. You gave everything so that we could have everything. Lord, we love you in your name. Amen.